All right. How's everybody doing? Um, I want to pray one more time, ask the Lord to give us help, uh, and then we'll jump into God's word. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you again in Jesus' name. Lord, it does not feel too repetitive to pray to you often because we need your help all the time. Um, you tell us to pray without ceasing for a reason. God, we need your help without ceasing. Uh, so, Father, we, we pray you be with us. Uh, we we want to hear from you in your word. We want to be more like you. Uh, God, thank you for this chance to worship together, Lord. And help this to be another chance for us to worship together as a church. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, as, uh, as Paul already pointed out, uh, I, we are going to talk about holiness this morning. Um, and that's what this passage we're going to look at in 1 Thessalonians is mainly about. But I want to start by talking about faith. And we'll work our way towards talking about holiness. Um, and what I want to talk about about faith is some kind of problems with how we think about it, how we perceive it. Um, and that we usually assume that faith is a finished product instead of a work in progress. When we think about our faith in Jesus, we normally think about it as some kind of finished product instead of a work in progress. And what that does is, when we're confused about the stage that we're in with something, we, uh, yeah, we're confused about what we're supposed to do. We're all thrown off. Um, I'll give you some examples. Um, uh, you know the question that kids will ask when you're driving somewhere, especially if it's a long drive, as they get restless, um, as if they do anything in their life but receive nice things. What do kids always ask as they get restless? Are we there yet? It's not asked only one time. Uh, it's asked as many times. As much breath as they have to ask questions, that's the number of times they'll ask. And it's because you're just in a different position when you're on your way somewhere than when you've already made it. And it's not just kids who do this. We have our own ways as adults of asking uh, whether or not we're there, I mean, whether or not something that we're going towards is done. Uh, Maybe we're staring at our watch or the clock nonstop to see when our shift is over, even though you just started your shift about 40 minutes ago. Uh, I remember my first job at a grocery store uh, in Dallas. I would stare at my watch more often than I looked at customers as I was checking them out. And it just made time go way slower. Uh, but I was just kind of always kind of waiting, wondering if we uh, were done. Are we there yet? We ask it in a, in a number of ways. Uh, sometimes uh, women in a dating relationship will... Uh, throw little hints wondering when that engagement question is going to come, like, are we there yet? Uh, we have a number of ways that we do this, and, and here's part of why, especially if we're in the car on our way somewhere. We're asking that, are we there yet question. When we've arrived, are we still asking that? No, because we made it. We relaxed. We're starting to enjoy whatever we're doing. And here's the thing. If we're confused and we think we've already arrived, then we may relax when we still need to be at work. We may relax when we still need to be thinking about the journey. Uh, I was driving to the airport yesterday in Dallas, and I keep staring at my GPS over and over again, wondering how close I am, wondering what turn I need to make. Once I make it to the airport, I'm not looking at my GPS. I've made it to my destination. I'm not trying to think about each turn in the same way. If we assume that we've arrived before we've actually arrived, we're relaxed when we still need to be on guard. And I think it's the same thing with our faith. The thing I want to drive home is just because you believed doesn't mean you've arrived. Just because you believe doesn't mean that you've arrived. And when we sort of think about faith, there are all kinds of ways that we think about it, some of them not helpful. One of the ways we think about faith is we think of faith kind of like an optimistic wish. Uh, like, um, man, I have not studied for this test, but I got faith I'm going to do okay. Uh, or, you know, I ain't been to work, but I got faith I'm going to be able to pay my bills. And that isn't faith, that's foolishness. We sometimes think of faith that way. It's some kind of optimistic wish. Or sometimes when we start to think about our faith in Jesus specifically, we'll think about faith as a, as a one-time event that gets us entry into the kingdom of God. Uh, and that's the only way we think about it, uh, with our faith in Jesus. And, and I, I don't want you to get me wrong. When we believe in Jesus, for the first time, something important happens. There are eternal realities that change. We were not a friend of God. We were an enemy of God, and then we become a friend of God. We're adopted in this family. There are real things that happen when we first put our faith in Jesus. But we shouldn't think of our faith as this one-time thing that's a finished product like that. There's still work to be done. Just because you believe doesn't mean you've arrived. Uh, and so I want to I look at just a couple things to think about this faith journey. Uh, and the first one I want to talk about, number one, is your faith needs work. Your faith needs work. Here's what I don't mean. I do not mean that Jesus 
is waiting for us to add something to what he did on the cross in order for him to accept us. We got to do some good works to make him save us. And, and one of the reasons is this. Sometimes we think that our faith, uh, we think that our faith, the perfection of our faith, how perfect our faith is, is what saves us. I just want to let you know, faith doesn't save us, Jesus does, right? We're saved through faith. So that's how we connect to what Jesus did. The Savior is not just your belief by itself. Faith by itself isn't even a virtue. How good faith is depends on what you believe in, right? So what saves you is not the, how perfect your belief is. What saves you is how perfect the one who you believe in is, right? So our faith is imperfect. That's how we connect to Jesus. But again, faith isn't this one-time event for us to just look back on fondly or just something that we tell our stories, our, our testimonies. Faith is a lifestyle when you believe in Jesus. Faith is a worldview. Faith is a, it's a compass. It's a lens we see everything through. If God is who he said he is, that changes everything. If God's going to do what he said he would do, that changes everything. If God is the originator of all this, that changes everything. And when we believe in him, right, when we put our faith in him, that changes everything. So a question I have for you then is, how would you respond if I asked you this question? How's your faith? How would you respond if I asked you that question? Probably give me the confused look that you're giving me right now. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. See if I can fix that facial expression. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, And we'll start reading at verse 1. And what we'll see right away is that Paul isn't just, he's not just concerned with a one-time profession of faith. Uh, he's also concerned with the perseverance in faith. He wants us to keep believing in Jesus. He wants to live in light of that faith. Uh, and we talked about this in other two sermons in the book, but just to give you some quick background again, Paul is uh, an incredible missionary, and he has some other guys going with him. And they went and they shared the gospel with this group of people in Thessalonica. They believe in Jesus. Amazing stuff happens. Then they get pushed out because people are mad at them about this. And so now Paul is a little anxious. He's, he's freaking out a little bit because they had to leave before they were done. They said, there's so much more stuff we wanted to teach y'all. And so Paul is wondering how they're doing. And so, but somebody may say this to Paul. Paul, uh, what are you worried about? If they made a profession of faith and that's all that matters, uh, Paul should be saying, mission accomplished. They said they believe in Jesus. And I I want you to see this. Paul is not just concerned with a one-time profession of faith. He's concerned with us continuing to believe in Jesus, too. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Uh, He says, Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. He's saying we thought it was better for me, Paul, and Silvanus to stay and to send Timothy. Verse 2. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we were going to experience affliction. And as you know, it happened. For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. We'll stop there for now. Uh, When you look at how Paul is thinking about this, Paul is a little bit stressed out. Because what we see through the book is Paul really loves these people. He probably only got to spend a few weeks with them, but he really loves them. They mean a lot to him. He's saying he longs to be with them. Uh, They're his joy, all of this stuff, because he's excited about what the gospel has done. And so Paul sends Timothy to him for for two reasons, to strengthen and encourage them so they won't be shaken by afflictions, uh, and to find out about their faith hoping they hadn't been tempted away from Jesus. So he sends Timothy almost like a doctor's house call. You know, doctors used to do this uh, before. Uh, they, most of doctor's visits, they would go to people's houses and check on them. I'd like to go back in time for that. That would save me some time. But they would go to people's houses, and they'd do these house calls, and they'd check on them. They'd see how they were doing. And all the stuff you'd get when you went to the doctor's office, they'd be able to do there. They'd see how you were doing. If they needed to give you something for your health to be improved, they would do that. So Paul is kind of doing this with Timothy. He wants to send Timothy to see how they're doing, but he's not just checking on their physical well-being. He's checking on their faith. How's your faith? And he wants him to strengthen and encourage their faith. And the fact that he's sending Timothy to check on their faith should tell us something about faith itself, that faith is something that has to be sustained and checked in on, right? Um, 
And is there something specific about the Thessalonians? Uh, no, th- this is just the nature of us. The truth is we're fragile, and even our faith is fragile. Again, our faith is not what's perfect. There's a man who sees Jesus um, uh, in, in the Gospels, in short version. He says these words to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. He says, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That in the same sentence, he's acknowledging the fact, I believe in you, but there's unbelief in my heart. Like, I trust you, and I'm trusting you to even help. That shows his trust in Jesus, that he thinks that Jesus can do something about the ways that he's still striving to trust him. Uh, And so Paul uh, is treating our faith like it's something that needs to be nurtured. There's a reason why the Bible uses a language of new birth, like when we believe in Jesus, saying we're born again. And then it uses all kinds of language of, like, growing up and maturity, talks about going from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity and the milk of the word and the meat of the word. Because when we're born again, we're spiritual babies, right? I think about when I first got saved, when I was 14 years old, um, and I thought I was a very wise and godly person. And I look back, I can't think about like a day of my life then without cringing deeply. Uh, Because even though I loved Jesus and I was reading the Bible, I was very, very, very immature, and there were things that God gave me and sent into my life to grow my faith, to make me more and more like him, and this is what God wants to do. Um, Our faith needs to be sustained and built up and nurtured, and if we treat it like it's a finished product instead of a work in progress, um, then we're not going to really nurture it the way we should. We're going to neglect it. Uh, So to give an example, and sorry to throw my wife under the bus, it's not really throwing her under the bus. She's good at a lot of things. Uh, one thing she's not good at, it's true, um, is keeping plants alive. Am I lying? Okay. Um, uh, keeping plants alive. So my wife loves plants, both outside and inside. I'm of the belief that God put plants outside for a reason, but that's a different story. She loves plants, so she likes to buy plants and put them in our house. Places where other people would put, like, books, she wants to put Something that grows outside, and that's fine. Um, marriage is full of compromises. The thing that happens, though, is uh, those plants would always die very soon. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of like what the Bible says, you know, you say you love your brother, but do you really? Uh, that's kind of how it is with the plants. I'm like, do you love plants? Because you let them suffer and die. These sad lives with no attention. Um... So these plants die, and so, but she loves them so much, she'll keep buying them. And every time she'll convince me, like, no, babe, I promise, this is really hard to kill this kind of plant. And it <laughs> dies very soon after. <laughs> and so it's to the point now where I've had to say, Lord has given me authorities ahead of my household. I've banned plants <laughs> from inside my house. We can't do it. Uh, it's a waste of the $10 it costs. But one thing is, okay, you can get fake plants. The great thing about fake plants is they require no attention or skill in caring for them. They are just there. So here's the thing. You don't have to pay them special attention. You don't have to put them in the sun. You don't have to be good with plants. You can forget they exist for months at a time and come back. looks the same. A little plastic looking, but it looks exactly like it did before you walked away from it. Um, And so here's what we do. We treat our faith like it's one of the fake plants, right? Where we say, oh, faith exists. Here it is. I'm really excited about it. And then we completely neglect it as if it's just going to be fine by itself with no actual nurturing. Our faith is more like that real plant where it needs sunlight and it needs water and it needs to be nurtured. There are things that have to happen for our faith to grow and for our faith to be sustained. We have to give attention to our faith. Our faith isn't a dead fake plant. It's alive, right? There's vitality. So we have to give attention to it. It needs to be strengthened and encouraged. That's what I mean when I say your faith needs work. Not that for you to be saved, you have to do good works to make Jesus like you. I'm saying your faith itself has to grow and be strengthened. Believing in Jesus doesn't mean you've arrived. And here's the thing. Um, there are dangers uh, that Paul seems to assume that we don't always assume. I think that's part of why we treat our faith like he can take care of ourselves, because Paul is acting like there are dangers that he needs us to look out for. And to put it bluntly, the way that Paul talks about it, it sounds like our faith is under attack all the time. 
This is why he's so worried about them. He's like, I'm not able to be with y'all. I'm worried about how you're doing. I'm sending Timothy to check on you because there are dangers. The the, the two threats he talks about, uh, he talks about being shaken by afflictions in verse 3. Verse 5, he talks about being tempted by the tempter. So the dangers uh, that he's talking about that, that our faith faces is pushback from the world and temptation from the devil. That these are dangers that we have. I wonder if you ever think about you or your faith as susceptible to danger. Do you ever think about it like that? This is part of what's important about seeing our faith not as a finished product, is our faith can be affected by this life. Our faith can be weakened. It can be shaken. So when he talks about these afflictions, it can be shaken by. He's thinking mainly of the persecution they'll face for following Jesus, right? Because this place doesn't like Jesus. Paul came and talked about Jesus for a few weeks, and they ran them out of town. The government got in this, right? They don't like Jesus. So he's saying, look, and we told y'all these afflictions would come just like it's happening to us. He said, I wanted to send Timothy to make sure that that didn't make you run away from Jesus. Now, why do you think that affliction, because you follow Jesus, would make someone consider leaving Jesus? It's very natural for us to try to find the easiest road, right? When something is really difficult, we want to get away from it. I mean, in some ways, we're programmed to do that. If I touch the stove, I move my hand because it's hot. I don't want to experience that pain again. But sometimes, because of our judgment, our instincts make us think it's hard and it's painful to do this road of following Jesus, so I want to take the easy path. That's what Paul's worried about. And there will be pushback that we face. There'll be persecution we face. The persecution that they were facing was much more intense and hard. But that's not to say that there's no pushback that we'll face that will also make us want to turn away from Jesus. Not only that, it's not just persecution kind of afflictions that can make us be shaken. Uh, Also, we can just be shaken by regular kinds of affliction and trials and pain. Those kind of things can push us away from from Jesus too uh, because we're trying to avoid these difficult things. So um, losing a loved one, right, can, can, can uh, threaten to shake our faith. Or losing a job or mental illness or disease or effects of aging or being broke or being lonely, all of these things can kind of shake our faith if we're not careful, right? The other, the other uh, threat he's talking about is temptation from the devil, right, that the devil does not like us loving God. So we we trust in Jesus, and we're part of God's family. The devil doesn't like that, so he'll try to tempt us. He'll show us things that seem more appealing. He'll try to draw us away from Jesus. How many times have we looked up and looked back at our past week and thought, man, there are a lot of things that were more appealing to me than Jesus last week? This is what the tempter loves to do. And you know what it is? It's false advertising. You know, sometimes, so this is a silly example, but first thing that comes to mind, last night, me and my wife were watching the conference finals and a commercial comes on for a food item that they're pretending will taste good. You ever see fast food, like even Wendy's burgers, on the screen, they're like perfect squares. You're like, oh, that's amazing. You go there, it's all jagged and it don't look right. There are holes in it. This is not what you advertise. And last night, what we saw was these mac and Cheetos. They were like Cheetos crunch on the outside, mac and cheese on the inside. No, thank you. That's not going to be good. You're lying to me. But this is what advertising does. I know that is disturbing. It's going to take a while to come back (laughs) attention-wise. Mac and Cheetos. Uh, uh, But but this is what advertising does. It lies to us to get us to buy into a product. right? So it doesn't matter if it actually is good. They just want us to go and get it. And in the same way, Satan, the tempter, wants to tempt us away from Jesus by saying, look at this. This is much better than Jesus. Oh, wait, 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 God didn't really say that. It's okay if you do that. The Bible is over. Don't worry about that part. You can do this. The tempter lies to us all the time, and we believe those lies. Paul's saying, we said, Timothy, to check on you to make sure those things weren't happening. And here's the thing. Um, those two things, pain or afflictions or trials and sin, temptations, these are the two things who whenever you talk to somebody who says, I used to... Uh, try to follow Jesus and go to church, but I don't anymore. There are all kinds of reasons that happens, and and it's tragic. And it makes us ask questions about eternal security and what it means to really be a child of God, and can can I really fall away? Uh, And and what we know from Scripture is when Jesus saves somebody, he keeps somebody. We can deceive ourselves, um, but but Jesus doesn't lose anyone. But when someone says, yeah, I was kind of, I was following Jesus, and I was going to church, but now I don't really do that, there are a lot of reasons. But they almost always boil down to these two things. 
some really difficult trial or affliction or pain or some kind of sin. When pain strikes us or when sin entices us, that's when we're most vulnerable. Right? That's when our faith is most vulnerable. When, when something's really hard and something really hurts, it makes you question everything sometimes. It's like, wait, would God really let me go through this or that? Or, no, is this really worth following Jesus if it brings me all this pain? Or maybe things aren't as I thought. When we're in pain and in trials, we're vulnerable. And also sin. Right? Um, even I've talked to folks who have like these intellectual arguments that they love to promote against Christianity. But when we sit and talk for a while, at the end of the day, there was some sin that they loved more than Jesus. And now that that sin was central in their life, they were willing to move around everything that they believed so that they could taste that sin that they love. This is what we do. If there's something that we put central in our life, we'll change everything else so we can have that thing. Paul said, I don't want you to be led away from Jesus because of afflictions or because of temptations. So here's an encouragement to you. If you're in a time where you're feeling intense uh, temptations or feeling intense pain and trials, I want you to be on guard because you're more vulnerable than normal. And this is where we as God's people get to link arms and walk together. This is where we get to help each other because we're weak, right? And we need one another. Um, Things change when you realize that you're in danger, though. Most of us are kind of strolling very casually through life as if there are no dangers when we should be treading really carefully. A lot of us trust ourselves way too much and we assume that there's nothing that can affect us in our relationship with Jesus in any way. I'll say, no, 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 there there are dangers that you should think through. When you know something's in danger, you you act differently. Uh, Last week, my son, uh, he'll get cold sores sometimes. We're like, oh, he has some cold sores. We're like, oh, he got a lot of them. And then we find out that he has some other infection, right? So at first, we're treating it like, oh, he just has cold sores. We'll put this stuff on him. We'll avoid him. Don't let him kiss us, and we'll just keep it moving. But then we find out he has this other infection. So as soon as we find that out, our whole plan changes. We think, oh, this isn't just a cold sore. He's in danger. There's an infection, right? Oh, there, there's one on his eye. They say, oh, you, you might need to go to the ER because hard things can happen. If it gets in his eye and all this stuff, our posture changes uh, completely because we've gone from this is just something regular we don't have to worry about to there could be danger and we need to protect our son. When you know you're in danger, it, it changes stuff. Oh, here's even another random example. I was walking my dog the other day, and I walk past, and I see DeAndre, and then I see Katoya in Mission. And I'm usually, you know, I'm just, I'm waving, and I'm, I'm continuing. Katoya looks real focused on her bike ride. And um, so I'm about to keep going. And then these two dudes basically just get, get in a fight, and, and another dude runs off, and he doesn't seem like he's in his right mind. And so it changes my whole posture. Because it goes from I'm just saying hi to my friends to I'm standing here watching him walk away just in case I have to get in a fight on their behalf. Damon, I had your family's back, bro. I was about to get in a fight (laughs) to protect your family. Uh, When there's potential danger, though, right? Otherwise, I just would have kept walking and and waved and been like, okay, see you Sunday. But when there's danger, it changes the way you go about things. This is why I want us to understand Paul is pointing out very real spiritual dangers. So we cannot stroll casually as if nothing can affect us. We want to tread carefully. So so I want to ask you, what are some things we do sometimes that are careless with ourselves spiritually? When are we careless? What are some things we do that are careless? It's a good question to ask. I want you to write that down and ask yourself this week, are there any kind of patterns or habits in my life that are spiritually careless? My encouragement is not to cower in fear and be afraid to go out of your house and to isolate yourself. I'm encouraging you to tread carefully, right? Not to be overly afraid, right? The Lord has us. The Lord gives strength. But there are dangers that we want to watch out for. So Timothy has checked on them, right, on their faith. What what kind of report does Timothy bring back? Uh, Verse 6. He says, but now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us, that you long to see us, and we also long to see you. There's that love he has for him again. Verse 7. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. Verse 8, for now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you? 
as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Timothy goes, um, he brings back a good report. He said, Paul, they're doing well, right? They, they still believe in Jesus, and there's evident love. I think it's important that he points out your faith and love, right? Your love not only for one another, but he's saying, and they still think well of us. All these naysayers are going in there and saying, we were just trying to get their money, and we know they're lying about us, and they understand what really happened. They remember what really happened, and they're believing in Jesus, right? He says, uh, we live, and when he says that, we live if you stand firm, that was a... a kind of a term that people would use around that time. They would basically say, if you were not to stand firm and leave the faith as my friend, it would hurt me so deeply it would be like a death, right? That's what he means when he says, we live if you stand firm. But this standing firm is the opposite of the thing he wants us to guard against, that being shaken by affliction, right? So when it's rocky and it's an earthquake in our life, we can either be able to stand firm or be shaken by affliction and fall down. I see this all the time when I land back in Atlanta and I get on that train to head. Uh, There's some people uh, who don't ride it that often. They're like, I don't need to hold on. The automated voice says, hold on because you're going to fall. And they're like, I'm good. And they're just texting. And then it goes and they go. (laughs) But here's the thing. Nobody who holds on falls, right? The train is about to move. We've warned you. You should hold on. And it's the same way here with Paul. Paul is saying life is hard. There are dangers hold on. And there's so many times we find ourselves in a rough spot, struggling to trust in Jesus, and we wonder what happened. And Paul is here saying, hey, uh, here are what the dangers are. You need to hold on. And God has given us a lot of things to hold on to. One another, his word, right, prayer, uh, confession of our sins, accountability. He's given us a lot of ways to hold on. Uh, I want to encourage all of us to hold on. Um, that we would stand firm. This, this is what it means for our faith to continue and to thrive. It's standing firm in our faith. It's not our faith being perfect. Our faith won't be perfect until we're perfect. We're face-to-face with Jesus. We'll talk about that in a minute. But as for now, we want to stand firm, continue trusting in Christ, striving to trust him. I don't want this to make folks feel like you're disappointed because your faith isn't perfect. None of our faith is perfect yet. The opposite of being shaken, though, is standing firm holding on to Jesus, still trusting in him. And even when you see doubt in your own heart or unbelief or ways you're being tempted away saying, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, right? Help me to trust you more. When Paul says to complete what's lacking in your faith, he's not saying that your faith isn't enough to save you. You need to add some stuff for Jesus to adopt you into his family. He's saying that faith needs to grow. That faith needs to mature. That faith needs to be prepared for the difficulties of the world so it can do what it does. Last thing I'll say in this part about our faith uh, needing work uh, is the way that Paul sends Timothy to check on the Thessalonians. How often are you checking on other people? Right? As you think about your own spiritual health and your faith, how your faith is doing, how often are you checking on other people, other believers, to see how they're doing? When you haven't seen somebody in a while, when's the last time you checked in just to see how somebody's doing? What often happen is, um, often if... Um, when, when we do get tempted away from Jesus, we also want to get away from his people because we, we don't really want it to be seen. And this is just something that we naturally all do. This is not to say anybody you haven't seen that that's the issue. But this is often what happens. And so knowing that, one of the ways we can love each other is just checking in on each other. Just a very loving way to see how somebody's doing. And when you talk, sometimes it's good not just to talk about random stuff, or Real Housewives, or whatever we're talking about, or just the NBA Finals, sometimes it's good to say, hey, how's your faith? How's your soul doing? I know you're struggling with this thing. How are you? Second question then, like this, how often are you letting other people check on you? So somebody texts you and say, how's your faith? Or you can be like, don't be worried about my faith. How's your faith? Are you... <laughs> right? We have to have the kind of humble hearts that are willing to have God's people check in on us. These are the two most important parts of us loving each other to to be more like Jesus. Being humble enough to care about someone else's spiritual maturity and being humble enough to let someone else care about yours. And this willingness to check on each other, give reports to each other, and be honest with each other. All of us, the reason we have to believe in Jesus is because we're messed up. So you're not giving someone a new revelation to say you're messed up. You're saying, hey, I'm struggling in this area. I believe in Jesus. Walk with me so I can grow, right? Your faith, your faith needs work. Uh, just because you believe doesn't mean you've arrived. 
of faith in Jesus, the thing we have arrived to is a relationship with Jesus. But what we haven't arrived to is the very end, the end goal. Uh, it's a work in progress. Number two, so your faith needs work. Number two, as we kind of continue to work along this towards that holiness, number two, you need God to work. So if you're going to grow, you need God to be at work in your life. Um, he's about to, in the, in the next little section, in the last verses, uh, we'll look at, before we get there, before he begins to tell them kind of what this holiness should look like in their life, he spends a few verses praying for them, asking God to do a few things in their life because we need God to work. This is why he thanks God for their fruit and their obedience. He's going to pray that God will continue to do that. Um, I hope we understand that our faith and obedience to God isn't something that we do over here and then we bring to him. So sometimes we think, I believed in Jesus, forgiven of my sins. Now I just need to get my stuff together and present myself to God. God, look how great I am now. Um, we talked that when we were uh, going through Romans 10, we talked about this, I got this kind of approach to our salvation, where we assume we have it all together and we don't really need a Savior. I got this. I can do enough stuff to make God like me. So sometimes we're willing to say, I need to trust Jesus to be forgiven. But then we take on the I got this approach, like now everything else, that's just on me. I can do that by myself. Um, and that's just as, uh, that's just as offensive to God. That's just as bad. We, we still need Jesus. My son right now loves Legos, uh, and I enjoy him liking Legos because it's something that we both enjoy. It's something we can do together, um, this, and, and it's great. We have a lot of fun. He'll, he'll, we'll pick up some Lego stuff. He'll be like, I want that one. I want Batman. We'll get Batman. Um, but some of them, the cool ones are like too old for him a little bit, so he needs help, so we'll do it together. And I don't want to just put it together for him because I want him to learn, and I want him to feel like he just did it on his own. So I'll be like, hey, get, uh, find that piece, okay, and then put it right there. And then I'll like push his finger sometimes if he can't push it down so he can do it. Um, and here's the thing. He's doing stuff that I'm asking him to do, but he doesn't, he's not really understanding that this piece is about to be the wheel all the time, but that this piece is going to look like the light. He's just kind of putting stuff in place while I'm asking him to do it. And then at the end of the day, there's a beautiful thing that he helped with and we get to look at. Here's something that happened the other day. Uh, he went with my wife to Target, and he got to buy something for some chores. He had some uh, measly amount of money that he could buy something with. And he bought these little Lego things. He was like, Dad, can we do this? I was like, yes. Can we wait till tomorrow? He was like, okay. He came back about 30 seconds later. Dad, can I, just, can, I, can I just do it? Can I start without you? I was like, yeah, that's all right. Um, thinking, good luck. Uh, and so he does. But it's going pretty well at first. He's doing pretty good. Uh, but then a little bit later in the evening, I see him over there with his brows like furrowed, like all the way down his nose. He's very frustrated. Um, and he's turning red a little bit. I'm like, are you breathing right now? Can you calm down? And so he shows me. He's like, Dad, I don't know what to do. I, I tried to do it. Um, I, like, is this right? It looks nothing like the picture. I, I'm more gracious than that. I'm like, uh, you're working on it. Uh, let's, let's do it a little bit later. Um, when he tried to just cobble it together and do it on his own and then present it to me, it looked nothing like what it was supposed to, right? And if he could have just waited on me to help him, understanding that, hey, I'm really doing the heavy lifting and you're just kind of assisting me a little bit. Uh, if he would have understood that, he would have waited on me. In the same way, we try to assume that we just need to take all our holiness on ourselves and then we'll bring it and present it to God. I just want you to understand we are incapable of being holy on our own. We are incapable of looking more like Jesus on our own. So when we go off by ourselves and cobble together this holiness and try to present it before God, I hope we understand that it will not be the kind of righteousness that God wants to produce in us. It'll be self-righteous, and it'll be imperfect. Listen to Paul's prayer, um, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. He says, now may our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. He's saying we still want to come there and be with you guys. Verse 12. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. He's saying, I'm praying that the Lord will uh, help you to love like he does, right? To love God and to love your neighbor. That he'll let that overflow in you. Verse 13. May he make your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. 
right? He's praying that the Lord would work this fruit in their lives, this love. And what he says in verse 13, we'll talk about love some more um, in a moment. But what he says in verse 13, may he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Um, You know, we've talked about how the Jesus coming back comes up a lot in this book. And what he says here is real interesting. He's praying God would make us not just a little better than we are. He says blameless in holiness, meaning there's nothing that we can be blamed for. There's no fault found in us, right? Um, And I think what he's talking about here is a kind of perfect blamelessness. Um, It's one thing for me to just look holy in front of my coworkers. I can just pretend for the hours that I'm at work and then stop faking when I get home. It's easy for me to look good to a bunch of people who are other sinners, who are also sinners and are also broken. He's saying blameless in holiness before our God and Father when Jesus comes back. What he's talking about here is something that we cannot do on our own. He's talking about this perfect holiness when we do actually make it to the end, when we do actually arrive. And here's why we should be so grateful. Um, we, nobody can rejoice at the second coming of Jesus if they don't know Jesus. Because when Jesus comes back, he'll be coming back not only to rescue those who've trusted in him, but also to judge those who've offended him. He'll also be coming back to judge. And so the fact that the perfect judge comes back and that we can rejoice in that is evidence of the fact that God does amazing work in those he saves. The only way The only way we get eternal life and we pass go when we stand before Jesus is if we're blameless in holiness, something we could never do on our own. And this is an amazing thing where um, as we work towards being more holy and God works in us, we're able to do that with hope knowing that one day he'll do it perfectly. We know where our trajectory is going. We're going to be perfect and blameless in holiness one day, and we get to rejoice even as we're singing uh, Cornerstone. It says when he, this is what we sing about in these songs all the time that I wonder if we're really grasping and thinking about. It says, when he shall come with trumpet sound, that's Jesus coming back, oh, may I then in him be found, right? When he come back to, comes back to judge, I hope I'm in Christ. It says, dressed in his righteousness alone, right? My righteousness is not going to make me pass that test faultless to stand before the throne. The only way we could be faultless or blameless before the throne of God is if we're found in Christ. Question for you, if you're here and you're not really sure if you know Jesus, you're not really sure if you think Jesus is who we're saying he is, um, I want to ask you, what do you think will happen when you stand before God? When you stand before your creator who, who knows everything, who sees everything, who even knows our thoughts and desires, What do you think is going to happen? Knowing that his standard is that we be blameless in holiness. Could you say that when you stand before God, based just on what you've done, that you would be blameless in holiness? Not before your friends who don't see anything. Before God who sees everything, that you could stand before him and that he could say, I find no fault with this person. There's nothing I can blame them for. There's no sin that's worth judging. There's not a single one of us that could stand before God by ourselves with confidence. And the reason that those of us who know Jesus can rejoice that he's coming back is that we know he'll give us his righteousness, that he'll make us blameless in holiness, that he lived the perfect life we couldn't live. And when he died on the cross and called us to trust him, he said, I'll give you my perfect record. It's like we had this long criminal record and Jesus had a perfect one. And he said, let's switch. I'll get punished for all the stuff you did, and you get to walk free. That's what he's done for us. Right? And so we can work towards holiness knowing that the Lord is going to work it in us perfectly one day. And and I find it not a coincidence that Paul brings this up right before he's going to tell them what holiness should look like in their own lives. I will say this. um, if, If you're here and you don't, you're not sure if you know Jesus. We'd love to talk to you about that. We want you to be able to think confidently about the day when you'll stand before the judge. I want you to be found not guilty, and that can only be found in Jesus. A great example is Ephesians 5 where uh, Paul says, Hey, husbands, lay your lives down for your wife like Christ laid his life down 
uh, for the church, and he talks about washing her in the water of the word, presenting her blameless. This is what Jesus does with his people. So I don't present myself to God blameless. God saves me, he cleans me up, and then he presents me to himself, right? That, that's the only way this works. Uh, just because we believe doesn't mean we've arrived, we need God to work. Last thing, we're close here. You need to get to work, right? So God is working in you. God has given us hope. He's told us what's coming. But he's also called us to some things. Um, we, we want um, a relationship with God with no strings attached. That's what we desire. We want God to say he loves us and to ask nothing of us. And he loves us too much to do that. He loves us too much to leave us in our mess and our sin. Because not only is God saving us from his own wrath, God is also saving us from our own foolishness. God is also saving us uh, from uh, the authority and the power of the devil. God is saving us not only from his own wrath, but also from ourselves. Uh, And he loves us too much to leave us in it, so he calls us to holiness. Um, Listen to uh, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord, Jesus, that as you've received instruction from us on how you should live and please God as you are doing, Do this even more, for you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So Paul starts by saying, look, um, we're encouraging you because there are some things we've called you to do in light of your faith in Jesus that you're doing. He's encouraging them. He's saying, good job. He's saying, the stuff you're doing well, do that even more. Uh, And he says, you know how to live and please God. Quick side note, just because we're accepted in Jesus uh, does not mean that we cannot please or displease God with particular things that we do. And we should love God so much that we want to bring him pleasure by the way that we live our lives. Paul's saying, y'all know how to do that. You're doing it. Do it even more. He's commending them for those things, but there's some other things that he needs to address in the life of the church. Verse 3. This is especially good for us, especially those of us who are wondering what God's will is for our life. He tells us very clearly. Verse 3. For this is God's will, your sanctification that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. He's saying, hey, here's God's will for you, life, you, you people who've trusted in him, your sanctification. Uh, that word sanctification means set apart. It means holy. He's saying God's will for your life is that you be set apart as his holy people. Like that verse we read earlier, God said, as I'm holy, you also be holy because you're mine. God, when he adopts us into his family, just like uh, John and Chandra just adopted Ava. Her name is Ava Anwachekwa. She lives in their house. She's part of their family. When God adopts us into his family, right? He calls us into his way of life. So he puts his name on us, and he calls us to the standard that he is, right? So Ava is Ava Anwachekwa, and we, as God is holy, are called to be holy. That's what he's called us to. Uh, he's called us to a, a particular way of life. And, and he starts off with talking about sexual immorality. And I just want to say this. Um, in the way that we think about sex in our culture these days, um, we think sexual purity maybe doesn't matter that much. So some of us may have came from backgrounds where people uh, only ever talked about sex in very negative ways. This is an evil, terrible thing. So people were serious in an unhelpful way. But the way that our culture talks about it makes a lot of us want to kind of uh, go in the other direction and think it's not, we shouldn't do it. We, we think of sexual immorality almost like we think of speeding. Like we, we're not, we shouldn't probably, but everybody does it. Like everybody's going 70. I'm not about to go 55. Right? That's kind of how we think about this. And I want you to know, that's not how God thinks about this. That, that is not how God thinks about it. Uh, the sexual immorality is something that offends him, that's rebellion against him. This is why he says, uh, anyone who rejects this doesn't reject man but God. And it's because these are not man-made rules that we made up. Sometimes we want to say, that's just how they thought about things back then. This is not just how people thought about things back then. This is what God has called his people to. So then when we say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that, or when we say, yeah, I'm, I'm just not really that interested in thinking through that, I want you to know you're not rejecting me, you're not rejecting Paul, you're rejecting God. God has called us to that, and it matters because he wants his people to be holy 
like he is. And he's been so good to us. And he, and he wants us to know he's calling us out of mess for our good. Now, here's what I do want to say. I don't want people to think that means that if we've already sinned in this area, that we'll somehow damage goods like some of these very extreme folks have talked about. Uh, that's just not how Scripture talks about this. Any sin. Like, it, it, there's nothing in Scripture that would make me think, if I've lied once, no point in me trying not to lie anymore because I'm already damaged goods. I'm just a liar. That's all I'll ever be. That's just not how Scripture talks about this. God has saved us, and he's given us a new identity. We're not somehow damaged goods, but he's calling us to holiness right now. He's not calling you to assume you're not worth anything anymore because you've fallen in this area. He's saying, no, I'm calling you to holiness right now. Not as a means to make you feel bad about yourself, but hope that we have in the fact that God can make us holy like he is. And he invites us into that. He calls us into that. And it matters to him. And, and he's also pointing out that we're not only sinning against him, we're also sinning against other people. Saying, don't take advantage of a brother or sister like that. Um, yeah, that's that's the, the holiness God has called us to. And if, you, if you're in a relationship right now where you feel like you're, you're not in a place where you're honoring this, I want to encourage you. God's grace is more powerful than the chains of our sin. God can free you from that, and there's life on the other side. Uh, there's some folks who, who came to mind as I was thinking about this. In our church, one brother who was in a relationship, was dating someone, uh, was struggling with sexual immorality, uh, confessed it to some brothers. Uh, they talked to him about it, and he ends up feeling like he needs to break off this relationship because he doesn't feel like he's able to have this relationship and honor God and walk the way that God has called him to. That's God working powerfully in his life. There's another brother who had been with the girl for a, a very long time. It's his girlfriend and his fiance, and they were living together, and he finally said, I've known this whole time that I shouldn't do this. I convinced myself otherwise. I know this is just us giving in to sinning in this way against God all the time. And God moved his heart, even though they'd been living together and their worlds were so collided that they were basically married. The Lord moved his heart to say, oh, my holiness and God's pleasure and me walking in the calling that God has called me to is far more important than these other things I'm giving into. So even though this is going to be really hard, I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to do what Jesus has called me to do, and I'm going to trust him to take care of the rest. I want to encourage you. Even if we feel like we're deep in sin, we're not trapped, right? The Lord can deliver us. I've seen him do it, and I've seen people come out of the other side grateful. And if I asked everybody to raise their hand, they felt like the Lord had delivered them from impure sexual immorality, uh, there would be plenty of hands to testify to this, right? I want to encourage you, the Lord is good, and he calls us to self-control. And he talks about when we do this, we don't reject God, man, we reject God, who gives us his Holy Spirit, who, who makes us holy like him. He ends this he ends this part uh, talking about brotherly love, and we'll, we'll close with this. Verse 9. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you're doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Continuing with this kind of holy standard he's called us to, love for one another is not something that's different than holiness. It's part of what it means to be holy, and he's calling us to love one another. Some of y'all are probably going to try to text this verse to somebody, mind your own business. Uh, <laughs> mind your own business. God said that. Uh, that's not quite what he's saying. Um, but he is saying this. Y'all are doing a good job with brotherly love. I've, I've heard about you. He said, Timothy brought a good report about your faith and love. Y'all are loving one another well. And, and I want to say the same thing to our church. I've seen an incredible amount of fruit and God uh, working a, a beautiful kind of brotherly love in our church. The kind of thing that I don't want to talk about very long because I'll probably tear up because it's stuff that we've uh, prayed the Lord would do in the life of our church. As we planted this church, one of the things we prayed was that the Lord would knit us together as a family in a way that we would love each other. And uh, the reason that makes me tear up is because, um, yeah, God really works in his people. And it's a beautiful thing. And I've seen people in difficult times where people have loved them like family. And then I've seen other stuff that doesn't even have to be like a really hard thing, but it's just people enjoying each other's company, right? There's a genuine affection between Paul and them. They want to hang out with each other. You know, like there's this uh, group text that a bunch of people are on. It's like 100 people, and they just talking all the time. Uh, some people went camping. Did that camping 
trip already happened. Um, the way that we know that this is the worth of the spirit is a bunch of black people went camping. There, there's no chance that that happens apart from the spirit of God. Uh, black people like basketball. And anyway, uh, brotherly love is something that the Lord is already working in the life of our church. And if, you, if you're black and you like camping, I'm not, you know, if you're white, you don't like camping, you're with me. But um, <laughs> brotherly love is something the Lord is already working amongst. I want to encourage us, like Paul does, do this even more. Build more relationships with each other. Uh, spend time together. Text each other. Uh, check on each other. Uh, rejoice with each other. Weep with each other. Paul is calling us to do this even more. And this is one of the things that honors God. Even the way that we work is a part of the ways that we love each other, right? He's saying, don't be the kind of people who don't work. So you're always asking everybody for money and you always have to depend on everybody. He's saying, love others enough to work hard, live a quiet life so that you look faithful. You're not depending on your brothers and sisters too much. We should care for each other. But he's saying, don't be lazy and irresponsible. And he's saying, also, you want to look good towards outsiders. This is part of why God makes his people holy, to show people what he's like. Um, if you still found yourself not able to care about holiness, I just want to remind you of this. Uh, Jesus is no longer physically walking our earth. Um, the people that Jesus has here to represent him, the only people that the God of the universe has on earth to represent him and to show what he's like are his people. And he's called us to be holy. How else will people see what God is like? So my, my encouragement for us to think through is think about faith in Jesus, not as if we've arrived finally, but to remember that it is still a work in progress. Our faith needs to be strengthened and grown, and God needs to continue to work in us as he's promised he'll do, uh, and we still actually need to get to work and striving to be more and more like him. So if you find yourself, as we often do, uh, thinking about your spiritual life, and thinking about all the ways discouraged by the way things are still hard, what you're doing is you're asking in your heart, are we there yet? And you're showing an amount of just, there's this kind of impatience and unbelief that God's really going to do what he said. I want to encourage you, trust God. Pray that he'll work. Trust him to work. Depend on him. Look forward to his promises. Strive to be more like him uh, and do it with a group of like-minded believers. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we, we come before you again in Jesus' name. God, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great salvation you've given us. God, and we pray you'd make us more like you, God. We, we are amazed at how holy you are. We are amazed at the fact that you give us eternal life. We're amazed at the fact that we can be excited about Jesus coming back, uh, Father, because you'll make us blameless in holiness. We know you'll do it. You've promised you'll do it. It's your work to do. God, and we pray in the meantime you will continue to make us more and more holy. Father, so we can honor you. God, I want to pray for my friends who don't know Jesus. Father, they'd see him in a way they've never seen him, and they would trust him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.